The Utah Open Source Foundation is proud to help open source grow in Utah and the Intermountain West. Watch for upcoming announcements about our expanding regional efforts. The following presentation, the Open Source Data Center, was given on Wednesday, May 13, 2009, by Dan Hanks at the Provo Linux User Group. Visit their site, plug.org. The bandwidth for this and many other presentations is provided by Center7. Visit their site at center7.com. BYU in computer science, and since I've been since '98, uh, mostly Linux, some Solaris. Um, tried to avoid Windows as best I could. Uh, started out at EagleNet Online back in '97, little ISP, local ISP here with around 20 servers. That's where I kind of cut my teeth on Linux back in the summer of '98 when fun things and cool things were happening with Linux. And it was interesting those years in school. I, I think my grades tended to suffer a little bit because of that, but. Uh, Oh, well. So anyways, uh, after EagleNet, uh, I took a little uh, internship out in Nevada with an engineering company doing some Windows programming for three months. That was enough to convince me I never wanted to work with Windows. So I didn't. So I came back and uh, got a job with uh, the then Norsky, which is a little uh, internet startup, uh, web hosting, that uh, subsequently got bought by About.com, who uh, subsequently was bought by Prime Media, who subsequently sold the web hosting division of About.com over to United Online uh, in 2004. And so in that slot, we had, oh, maybe around a couple hundred servers. So we kind of stepped up in order of magnitude into that operation. Back in uh, 2008, uh, May, it's almost been a year now, or it has been a year now, um, United Online closed the web hosting division. Well, they didn't close the whole division. They just closed the office that ran it and took operations themselves from California. Um, so I uh, moved over here to Amateur, a vast move of a couple buildings over in the campus. Um, to where we have around 15,000 servers that uh, I work with. I don't manage them all myself. We have an admin team that uh, helps to manage all those. Uh, but again, another order and magnitude up. And I suppose maybe next I have to move to Google to get the next order of magnitude if I want. So, anyways, actually, then on the uh, earnings call from Amateur that they just had, uh, they, the number was 19,000 machines. Um, if you look, I suppose all the divisions of the company were probably around that. So. Big operations, lots of interesting challenges. At this scale, you get very, very interesting problems to solve. I have one very patient wife and four very adventuresome kids. Um, as I was telling the guys earlier, family life and preparing presentations for plugs just don't seem to mix. And so I was up till you know 2:30 last night trying to polish this off. And uh, well, anyways, before we get started into this, though, I want to ask, what do you? Obviously, you're here for some reason. I want to get kind of a feel for what you're hoping to go home with tonight. And I'll try and tailor what I say and what I share to maybe what you want. So by raise of hand, if you have any questions, I'm open. Yeah. I'm interested to hear about uh, automation or how can you script. I mean, a human being cannot humanly walk around and uh, monitor and manage something's server. So right. How do you automate that? Excellent. Okay. Yeah. I'm wondering uh, what kind of tools you use to um, track and uh, manage configuration on that in the servers because I've got a system myself that's about 1,500 concurrent graphics and it's starting to become a major pain point. Right, okay, good, okay, yeah. 
I've got a very small operation, and I want to know what can I do now to make it so the cloud is used for later. So I want a free service I'm managing it already with programming in the mix. It's Okay. I don't want to interrupt here, but this really sounds like candid conversation. Did you like did you hit them all up and tell them to ask these questions before you started? Uh, we'll take care of the payments afterwards outside. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, James. So I was obviously quite familiar with your stuff when you had it online. I want to know out of what you had self created there, what you've learned that already existed that you just opted to use instead as a larger operation. Okay, so out of what we had there so kind of, I know you, you home built a lot of stuff at UOL. Now that you're here, what have you scrapped of your own uh -huh. to make something that was already open source, was, was better than you found? Okay, so as opposed to what I would rewrite from scratch, what would I use that's already out there? And okay. what would you still rewrite from scratch? What would I still rewrite from scratch? Probably as little as possible. <laughs> Obviously, but what, you know, are there ones where okay. Okay. I'll answer that question up front. Um, most of the pieces are out there. It's the interesting thing. Um, although what you do run into a lot is that with a lot of tools that are out there, they're built to manage maybe a, a few hundred servers, or in some cases even up to a few thousand. But when you get to that next order of magnitude, the tools sometimes start to break down and they're not built for that kind of scale. And you kind of have to hack them or cobble them together, federate them, shard them, whatever the case may be. So. So, and a lot of the, the glue parts of gluing all this stuff together is where a lot of the effort goes into. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, and I'm not sure a lot of it's PHP, a lot of shells, some Python, so, yeah, and trying to get some Perl in there. <laughs> Any other questions? All right, then we'll move forward. Um, good questions. And granted, I've uh, only been at Omniture for a year, so a year's exposure to 15,000 machines is not equivalent to 10 years' exposure to 15,000 machines, so I'm still learning. There's still a lot to be learned here. So, but what I have, I'll share it freely that I can share. Um, so again, the open source data center, uh, plugging open source software into patterns of data center operations. Um, how did this all start? Okay, so back at Unite Online, we went through a number of painful and tedious data center migrations. So every now and then we'd have to you know, pick up the shop and move it somewhere else. And every time you did that, it was kind of a, a mixed bag, right? It was always a pain in the rear to do that because you have to interrupt things and try to do it without going offline ever or having you know, minimize your outages. But at the same time, it was a good opportunity because each time you got to go to the new space, you kind of got a chance to rebuild. And so you could kind of fix all the mistakes that you had run into or that, had, that always tend to creep into systems of this size over time. Um, but as I would do that, as we'd go through each of these moves and each of these build-outs and acquisitions, that kind of stuff, um, I began to see certain patterns of the basic set of operations or the basic set of services that were needed to run you know, a data center operation. Like a, in our case, it was a web pushing uh, operation or it could you know, be, be some sort of web application or something. Anyways, there was a bunch of patterns that I began to see, and I kind of started you know, making a mental list of that. And that's kind of what this presentation grows out of, that mental list. And then we'll talk about the different open source software that's out there to be able to plug into this pattern. Let's see. And so what was interesting to me, um, so yeah, too many data center migrations and build-outs. What was interesting to me is when I went from United Online over to Omniture, 
I saw a lot of those same patterns, so it was really gratifying that, okay, this, this, this was all making sense, right? Even at a smaller scale to a larger scale, there's a lot of the same patterns going on. Obviously, there's things you have to do differently at this kind of scale, but it's a lot of the same kind of patterns. Um, at uh, United Online, the patterns are a little bit smaller, at least in our division. United Online itself is really quite actually a large operation. There's several thousand machines there, but uh, similar patterns, just at a larger scale. So that's what we'll be focusing on tonight is those patterns of what you do in these kind of uh, scale of operations. Um, so we, there's kind of three areas we can talk about. The physical infrastructure, you know, hardware, switches, racks, cooling, all that kind of stuff. There's your actual application, whatever lives on top of that. This uh, thing in the middle here, this operations infrastructure, this is what we're going to focus on tonight. Um, the stuff in the middle that kind of glues all your components together and provides the foundation so that you can run your application on top of that. In my dreams, it would be this easy to build out your data center. You know, you'd fire up a little Perl script, um, make sure you use warnings, use strict, so you're doing well. But then you'd have this nice little data center module, and you tell it, yeah, we want to build a web application, we need some infrastructure for that. So you'd instantiate your data center, yeah, it's going to be in uh, San Jose, and use Equinix for the vendor, and just, you know, assume a bunch of really good defaults. You know, maybe it could be even this easy. We don't have to specify defaults because it's really, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of good defaults. If any of you have seen Damien Conway's talk about sufficiently advanced technology, it's based around the quote that sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, right? So if your code is advanced enough, it, you use some really good sensible defaults and, you know, just simplifies things quite a bit. But until we get to that point, and I'll pick that point up at the end of the presentation because we're getting closer with all this cloud stuff. Anyways, until we get to that point, we're going to use some patterns. And these are these patterns that we'll talk about tonight. By the way, if there's anyone who could sneak out and grab me a glass of water so I don't sound like a frog, I'm starting to get dry mouth here. So. Okay, so we use the patterns. Pattern number one, system imaging and provisioning. Um, essentially, this is once your bare metal is installed in the rack um, and powered up, connected to your network, how do you then lay down the operating system in a basic configuration for one machine, for 10 machines, for 1,000 machines, 20,000 machines? How do you do that, right? What tools are out there in the open source world to help us do that? So, again, getting your operating system some applications, I'm obviously a Postgres bigot. Um, whether it's a few handful of machines or if you have lots of machines, how do you do that? Um, so in the Red Hat world, you have something like Kickstart. How many of, of you are familiar with Kickstart? Okay, so Kickstart is a system uh, used by Red Hat that where you specify a bunch of basic stuff about your hardware. These are the partitions I'm gonna have. This is the set of uh, RPM packages I want to install. Thank you. Try not to spill that on the keyboard there. Okay, so these we're in the Kickstart file. You specify um, what kind of packages you're going to install, what your network configuration should look like, and any other kind of scripting and stuff that you want to read. And this file gets fed to the machine as it's booting up, and the machine follows those instructions, lays down the operating system, installs the packages, and does any configuration that you want to do. So that's really helpful in the uh, Red Hat world. Same CentOS being a derivative, all the Red Hat derivatives. I even saw Kickstart for Ubuntu. 
Kick C? Kick C. Okay, so. There's another one out there called Five for Debian. I haven't used that in a production environment, so I can't say too much about it, but it's out there, so you're aware of it. Autodesk for SUSE, Jumpstart for Solaris. There's a system out here called Rocks that's tailored for uh, high-performance computing clusters um, that uh, pretty much allows you to lay out an entire cluster of machines, uh, all with the same kind of image. There's another one called System Imager that uh, works more on a golden image sort of model, where you create a golden image of this is what my machine needs to look like, and then it'll burn that onto a number of different machines. Um, some challenges here is maintaining your images. So, so that's pattern number one, is uh, and what tools are available there to get uh, the, the system out there. Now, operating at scale, um, so there's some prerequisites for that, the kind of stuff for Kickstart, for example. Um, some infrastructure that needs to be in place prior to using Kickstart on a big scale, of course, if you have one or two machines, it's with Kickstarter, you can go pop in a CD or you know Kickstarter that way. But when your data center is thousands of miles away, you have to do things a little bit differently. And so you have things like Pixie, which is a pre-execution environment that um, when a machine comes up, the BIOS will make a DHCP request. The DHCP server will hand back an IP address so it can start talking on the network and also hand back a little bit of information about where to go next. And so it'll fetch a TFTP image and start the process up. We'll fetch in a Kickstart image, um, start following those instructions. You'll need so you'll need you know DHCP server, basic network services, either maybe HTTP, FTP, or NFS to serve up the distribution contents, DNS servers so it can do some resolution. Um, stuff like that is what you're going to need to be doing the the provisioning and the Kickstarting. A new tool that's uh, recently come out that looks really interesting kind of combines a lot of that. It's called Cobbler. Um, combines Kickstart, DHCP, Pixie, DNS, and uh, also management of your YAM repositories. So a really nice tool. If I were going to start again, maybe asking Jason, to, going back to Jason's question at the beginning, um, what would I keep, what would I you know, use that's already out there? Back at Night Online, I kind of built up a, a server that served out all these things, and I'd probably look at Cobbler really closely because it does a lot of that for you, um, putting it together. So the challenge comes when you're operating at a large scale and you've got multiple environments. How do you serve up, for example, your DHCP requests over large subnets? Do you segment? Do you have a, a server in each of your segments, um, each of your network segments? Um, how do you maintain the configuration images or your Kickstart images across all of these different environments? So there's a challenge that you have to think about once you start getting up to large scale. So pattern number two is system configuration. Once your machine is up and running, how do you maintain the configuration on the machine? If you've got something like system imager, you have to re-image each time. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. In some cases, it's faster to re-image and build from scratch than it is to try and figure out what's wrong with the machine and fix it. Um, especially when you're dealing with you know thousands of machines, you just don't have time to try and debug every last little thing. And sometimes it's faster to just you know pull it out of rotation, re-kickstart it, re-image it, and get it back. You know, then get it going again. Um, so, what tools are available here? There's one called CF Engine. Um, that uh, basic model of CF Engine is you define a policy on a master server. 
And then that policy is then spread out to a number of other machines, and they read that policy and then adjust their system configuration according to that policy. Um, and Safe Engine allows you to control things like, um, I'm trying to think of some of the built-ins, it's been a little while. We don't use Safe Engine at, uh, <clears throat> at uh, Omniture, so it's been a while, but um, you can, it'll allow you to run different scripts. Um, you can uh, tell what set of packages need to be installed on the machine. So you can use the first pattern of kickstarting to lay down a basic uh, OS image, and then you get CF Engine installed probably as part of that kickstart process. And then you, or CF Engine, then you CF Engine to specify what packages should be in place, what configuration files need to be in place. Maybe I need to make a modification in my Etsy host file. Maybe I need to throw something in the Apache config. Or maybe I just need to distribute some files all together. And you can distribute files uh, through CF Engine. It's a little bit, uh, you kind of have to bolt it on yourself. There's other tools that will do that for you. So Puppet's one that's come out recently. It was written by a guy named Luke Kanye's. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I'm not sure. Um, but it was kind of written in a response to CF Engine. He tried, Luke uh, worked with CF Engine for quite some time. Had kind of a lot of gripes about it. Um, the develop the lead developer of CF Engine wasn't too keen on some of the changes Luke wanted to make, so Luke kind of went out on his own. Using Ruby, he built a system called Puppet, which is very similar, but in my opinion, feels a lot more polished, a lot easier to use. It's written in Ruby, and he uses a domain-specific language that allows you to declaratively specify what your system should look like. So in your configuration on Puppet, on your master, your Puppet master, you can um, define, so for the web servers, they need to have these users on them. They need to have these cron entries. They need to have these file permissions on this set of files. And Puppet also provides a file server service, so you can create a set of basic files that need to go out to this class of machines. And so the machines, when they run through their Puppet config, they can fetch back the files insert that are served up through the Puppet master, or through the, the master server, and be able to and then apply that config. Nice thing is you can apply templating to this as well. So you can say, use this template, and then when you get on this host, apply these rules to fill, to fill the template according to whatever is needed on that host. So really quite a nice system. And if I were going to start again from scratch, I probably wouldn't do the CF Engine route. I'd probably do Puppet. It's a little more feature rich, uh, in, my, in my view. Um, Let's see, the one, another nice thing about Puppet is it has a, a hardware and an OS abstraction layer. One of the difficult things in working with CF Engine is you have to do things a little bit differently in, in your configuration depending on if you're working on Solaris or if you're working on Mac OS or if you're working on Linux. Puppet has this nice OS abstraction layer, so you just talk about generic things like services. I want Apache to come up on boot. Apache needs to be running at all times. Um, and then this abstraction layer does the right thing depending on whether you're working on Solaris, depending on whether you're working on Mac OS or Linux. So it's really nice that way, and you can just work in generalities. These users need to have accounts, set their passwords with this value, that kind of stuff. Um, and there's a lot of different types there that you can configure on your system. Like I said, you can put cron entries in place with this. You can create different configuration files, make sure different services are running, make sure they start up at boot. Um, there's some others that uh, are a little less well-known, like BCFG2, developed at Argonne National Laboratory. I haven't used that, so I can't say much about it. Likewise for LCFG. 
LCFG's uh, design, they're similar in design to Puppet and CF Engine. LCFG's designed for large installations. Um, there's a group at the LISA conference each year, Large Installation System Administration, that talk about system configuration, and, and some of the authors of these generally attend that kind of stuff. Another option that you have is rsync and a lot of glue. Start some kind of master server and just rsync the stuff out and uh, maybe run some scripts, you know, that becomes tedious after a while and, and can become problematic, but it is an option, you know, depending on the size of your network and what your needs are. Another one that's recently come out, just recently, is called Chef. I don't know too much about it. Um, it uh, has been heavily influenced by Puppet. It uses, for its uh, def definition language, it uses Ruby itself as opposed to a Ruby-like language used in Puppet. So, just another one to keep your eye on. Um, okay, so... What's that? Yeah. So... So Ryan's question for the people in podcast land is what people are actually doing right now. So yeah, let's open this up. But make files. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What we've been doing is up until recently, we just you know we had a set of big files and we just you know copy them all to the Etsy directory to control things. And recently tried this. Puppet over bringing the problems where it like overloads the master mm -hmm. or the, the client just dies without saying why. Mm -hmm. So looking for alternatives. What uh, recommendations have you gotten from the author or from the, the community around Puppet? I'm curious. I, really I, I was the one working on that with another guy, so I don't know. Uh -huh. That's something I've heard uh, too with Puppet is you get to large scales, you start to run into problems with the master being able to keep up with the load and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in getting him to talk, we can probably get a presentation for you too. So. Mm -hmm. 
Chronometry uses Kickstart, and uh, after Kickstart, there's a script that gets run on each machine that does all the configuration magic, and then we'll... Not using Cobbler. I would love to try that out. Uh, well, Cobbler and Poplet and that kind of stuff. Once it's up, we have, and Ryan can step in and tell me if I'm disclosing too much information. Um, once the machine is up, we use, um, I'm not familiar with all the internals, we have a script that pushes configurations and files out on a mass scale, homegrown solution. And that's worked for us. Um, there's a lot of rough edges and dark corners I'd love to go and clean out. Um, my role hasn't been in that specific area at Omniture at this point in time, but there are days when I wish I could have something like CF Engineer or, or Puppet, and I think this is screen for it, so. But yeah, that kind of stuff can work and can grow you to this kind of size, so. Um, but yeah, if I were starting out again from bare metal, I'd be using one of these, probably Puppet. Um, oh yeah, one interesting point, uh, the uh, the Phi installer that I mentioned for Debian can tie into CF Engine, so, which is an interesting tie-in there. Um, going back to the questions of automation and uh, tracking and managing configuration, um, again, that's where all this would fall into, is those, how you automate all that, how you track all the configuration. Um, at Omniture, we have to be really careful, when you get to this guy, you have to be really careful about how many machine types and how many builds you have, because that can scale out of control really, really fast. So we're very, very strict about our hardware configurations, very, very strict about what new software we deploy where, what goes on our images, that kind of stuff. You have to be just careful, otherwise it can scale out of control. And, the complexity just becomes so huge. So, something to keep in mind. Let's see. So yeah, a lot of these systems, a common thread is they're declarative versus procedural, which I, I like a lot. It's a what versus how, what should my system look like, as opposed to run this series of steps to get there, which is kind of nice. Uh, a danger with these kind of systems, particularly in large scales, is it's really easy to hose your system, uh, to hose your entire system if you, uh, if you misconfigure something, you know, if you put in an inadvertent RM or an inadvertent uh, remove this file and you remove the wrong, wrong file, you end up removing a directory or code directory or something like that. Bad news. So my recommendation there, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, is just have a really good staging and QA environment that mimics all of your production operations so that you can run through these configuration changes in that environment and work out the bugs in that, in that scenario first and employ good change management practices, and we'll talk about that in pattern number 12. Pattern number three is software and patch management. Once you have your systems up, how do you keep up to date with all these patches? Um, how do you keep your YUM and your uh, um, app repositories um, up to date? How do you know which patches to take in from upstream and which not? How do you manage all that? Obviously, we've got the tools. We've got YUM, AppGet, 
An interesting one that I don't think we've heard about too much is our path. It'd be an interesting one to look at. They've kind of gone RPM squared kind of thing and uh, having all sorts of stuff going on there. R-Sync, you could just use that to push stuff out. Question to package or not to package. Do you want to use a packaging system like Apt or Yum or just you know build everything from source and deploy it all to user local and just have a golden build? It's another question you have to consider. Um, there's pros and cons about each way. I'm a packaging type person myself. Um, let's see. The main thing, the main challenge here is how do you verify that every one of your 20,000 machines has the same software set? How do you ensure that all your web servers have the exact same set of software that they need to run their, their code correctly? How do you make sure that all of your mail servers or all of whatever server have like all the right pro modules that they've got? Um, so stuff like uh, Puppet and CF Engine can uh, have ways to handle that, saying these are the set of RPMs that should be, or these are the set of packages that should be installed on this server, and take corrective action if you don't find them there. That's definitely a challenge. Pattern number four is monitoring, and as I got, was preparing for this talk, there's kind of some uh, ambiguity in what's meant by monitoring, what's meant by data collection. I'm going to define monitoring as essentially availability um, and performance. So we'll talk a little bit about performance first. Um, I, I'd recommend in talking about performance to look at the slides that Carrie Millsap gave at the recent uh, Percona conference that was held in conjunction with MyScale conference. A uh, big thing to look for there is response time, focus on response time. We can measure all the layers of the stack, but in the end, what our users are experiencing is you know, where the bread and butter comes from. So, let's see. And then, of course, availability. So performance, we want to measure how fast it is, how well it's performing, how well it performs under load. Availability, is it available or not? There's a couple other types of facets of monitoring. You have external monitoring, meaning what does our site look like to the rest of the world? Is it up? Is it available? Is it performant? And internal monitoring. Is my SMTPDs, are they all responding like we expect them to? Or is my database responding like it expects it to? Is my queuing system accepting messages in the queue? That kind of thing. Um, external monitoring, there's a lot of different services out there. These are not open source. Um, some are cheap, some are free, some are very expensive. Keynote Gomez are really expensive. These allow you to essentially synthesize web transactions. Some of them have little script recorders where you can go browse through your website and record that script and then replay it uh, from different nodes all over the world in their, in their network of nodes, monitoring nodes. And then they can give you graphs and reports about how things are performing. Now, there's your website, Bulls Alert site. Mon.itor.us is actually a free one. Um, they do have paid versions, but it is a free one. Uh, I think they've got I can't remember how many nodes are monitoring. Pingdom's another interesting one that I thought was pretty good when I tested that out, siteuptime.com. Some of these are just focused on uptime. Is my site available or is it not? Kind of a binary thing. Others actually go into response time and give you detailed information about how long did it take to do the DNS lookup on particular requests? How long did it take to request the first byte? When I, once I sent that first byte across, how long did it take to actually get the rest of the content? Um, it'll break down your connection by that. It'll break down by each object on your page. How long did it take to fetch this graphic? How long did it take to fetch this flash object? All that. It'll break it down by that and give you connection statistics on all of that. So those tend to be really expensive, too. And 
they price based on the number of nodes you run your thing from, where your nodes are located, how often you run the tests, what kind of tests they are. You know, are we just fetching a single URL, or are we fetching an entire page of objects, or several, or walking through a transaction of several pages on our on our on our site? But it's important to do this because monitoring internally from say Nagios or something like that, or Nagios. Raise your hands, quick survey. Who pronounces it Nagios? Nagios. Okay. Just curious. Um, let's see. Now I lost my train of thought. Good. Uh, anyways, um, but yeah, with internal monitoring, you can only go so far, and it's good to get you know your transactions through the entire stack um, coming from someone in Russia. How are they? That's another interesting thing. Is you know when you've got data centers that are just located in the United States. For example, how are people in Europe, how are people in Russia, how are people in China, how is their performance compared to someone in the United States that's, you know, a couple hops away from your data center? And depending on where your audience is, that can become very important. Um, and who you're trying to reach and how well you're trying to reach, what kind of market penetration you're looking for, that kind of thing. Um, internal monitoring, you want to monitor any system that will impact the quality of your service if it becomes unavailable. So you kind of have to be really thorough and proactive about this. Um, but as outages come, you can use those as opportunities to patch up holes in your monitoring. Why didn't, if this outage happened, why didn't we know about it beforehand and take measures to make sure that we're alerted well before that happens in the future? Well before the disk drive fills up, well before we saturate the network, well before we uh, you know, run out of uh, query capability in our database. Um, and go just beyond checking the port. A lot of these systems make it really easy just to, oh, port 80 is responding, we're good. Well, no, you got to go beyond that. Fetch the page, cause a transaction to happen on your web server, deliver a message through your SMTP systems, set a value in your memcached, any of those kinds of things. <clears throat> just to make sure that your every aspect of your system is functioning as it normally ought to. There's a lot of tools out there that can do this uh, um, as far as uptime and availability. Nagios, obviously, is a very popular one. Zabbix is another one that's uh, come out recently in the last few years. Looks uh, it's pretty, um, <clears throat> uh, and it looks like it scales fairly well. Um, a lot of these are agent-based models, or can use agent-based models, where as opposed to just hitting something from outside your server, you can actually run an agent on on your server, and it will collect data there and then send it back from home, kind of thing. Send it back to a centralized point where it can aggregate that data. Um, Hyperic's another one, OpenNMS. Let's see, Hyperic uh, gives you auto-discovery, which is a really nice tool in large environments. Uh, so as you bring machines up, um, uh, I guess how this auto-discovery works is you can install an agent in your provisioning uh, process, and when that comes up, it'll start sending out responses, hey, I'm here, hey, I'm here, and that'll just show up in your, uh, in your centralized monitoring system. Um, Let's see, OpenNMS is uh, another one written in Java. Let's see, with this open, and all these you'll find they have different feature sets. Some of them do just monitoring, some of them include a little bit of inventory and asset management, um, data visualization and collection. Um, OpenNMS, its three focuses are on service polling, pulling your services for the data, collecting that, and then it also can do event and notification management. In other words, if something's down, tell me about it. <coughs> Mon is another one, pretty simple one. Uh, Monet, uh, its billing is, uh, or its feature that it touts is being able to monitor and do corrective action. So if it, you've got something happening on your server that triggers a certain threshold, it can take corrective action that you've predefined. Um, 
Reconnoiter is done by the guys at uh, Omniti. I don't, I don't know how you pronounce that. Theo Schlossnagel, he's written a good book called uh, Scalable Internet Architectures. Um, smart guys, uh, definitely something worth looking at. They focus on ease of admin, um, efficiency and scale, delegated deployment, and applying policies to large groups of service. That's an interesting one I, I, I'd like to take a closer look at. Another one called Irma that uh, I hadn't heard of before I uh, got ready for this um, called the Extremely Reusable Monitoring API. It was developed at Orbitz, the travel company. How many of you knew that Orbitz was an open source company? Um, anyways, they've got some really good open source software that they have provided for the community. Um, uh, this one, again, is a monitoring tool. Lots of Java going on with Irma. Let's see. Next pattern is system data collection and visualization. There's a lot of crossover between pattern four and pattern five. Yeah. Really before you get into that, there's another one that um, kind of just jumped onto the scene, which is Xenos. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's got like CAC Dynamic Maps and RD. Yeah, and if I'm missing any of these, please, this is an open source presentation, so let me know and we'll incorporate it. Tons of them. Yeah, yeah. I like Nagios. I like the object model that Nagios uses. It it's got an object model where it defines you've got hosts, you've got services, you've got uh, escalations, you've got uh, schedules, and it all ties in really nice. I'm kind of a data person. I'm a DBA in a past life, so... I like its object model, and it wouldn't be too hard to put the Nagios object model into a database and store your configuration there, auto-generate your Nagios config. Okay. And there's... Yeah. I like Nagios. What I don't like so much about Nagios is that the interface is built from memory in C. And so it makes it a little bit harder to extend and you know, integrate that if you want to. Um, but the core uh, monitoring and everything uh, is pretty nice to plug into uh, and easy, easily to plug into your systems. Um, and yeah, again, if, you've got, if I'm missing things on this list, let me know. I'd love to add these to the, the presentation. Let's see. So system data collection and visualization, there's a lot of overlap between monitoring and this because, you know, that essentially number four is another sort of data collection and visual visualization. Um, there's a ton of these. Um, you've got Cacti, which is uh, built in PHP. Um, it's front-end around RD tool. A lot of people using it. Um, it can do graph templating, so if you have all sorts of different graphs you want to create, you can have templates that do different kinds of graphs based, graphs based on a theme. Uh, the one thing I really like about Cacti is the ability on a given graph, you can draw a little box around it and it'll zoom into that graph, expand that section out, so you can kind of dive in deeper into a particular event if you're interested in what happened there. Um, Ganglia is probably my favorite on this list. Um, it was built for high-performance computing clusters. And so it scales quite well. It uses multicast underneath. 
So you've got uh, all these agents running on your boxes called GMOND, and they are phone, phoning home to a GMetaD, which is an aggregator, and they can use meta, uh, multicast for not clogging up your network so much. Uh, really a nice tool. Um, it can monitor just about anything you can produce with a script. So if you have a script that can spit out some kind of value, then uh, Gangly can take advantage of that and spit that phone home that, that back from your, your servers to the, the master. Um, it has a PHP front end. Uh, it can aggregate data by cluster. So if you have a web cluster and you want to see how overall is my web cluster performing, um, it can show you what's the average load across this cluster of machines. What's the average disk usage across this cluster of machines. So really nice. I really like that aggregation feature. Um, very, very helpful. Uh, you can slurp the data out of it uh, in XML to plug into other systems. We did that at Unite Online. Um, uses RRD to store its uh, information. Uh, Munin is another one. Uh, it's another agent-based system where you've got an agent running on uh, your machines. It's written in Perl. Yay. Um, uses RRD. Um, easy to write plugins. A lot of these have a common theme in that they have plugins. You, if their set of plugins that they provide to monitor particular aspects of your system just don't quite have what you want, you can write your own plugins to monitor, you know, whatever it is about your system that you want to monitor that's your key performance indicator. Um, Zabbix, we mentioned that one. Collecty is a, called the System Statistics Collection Demon. This one's really cool as I was reading about this one. Um, again, it uh, runs on your servers, it gathers stats. Um, it's written in C. It's intended to be extremely lightweight. It's pluggable. It's got bindings, so you can write your own plugins in C, in Perl, and Java. Uh, you communicate with it via Unix domain socket, or it'll exec binaries for you, your scripts. It can do SNMP for you. Um, they've also added simple monitoring, uh, like Nagios, uh, with a notification and thresholds. Uh, you can plug its data into Nagios. I've got a plugin that'll do that for you. I like it because it's really simple. It's kind of like, it's really good glue piece in your, your system and very simple. It does one thing, it does it really quite well. Um, it doesn't generate graphs, but you can use its data to do so, spit in the RRD or whatever, uh, any kind of graphing system you want. It can do high resolution statistics. And it, the default is 10 seconds um, without putting too much load on your system. Um, it's really good, to, uh, they're targeting it for embedded systems like your WRT router here. Um, so if you want to run it on that kind of thing. It has a data push model using IPv6 and multicast, again, so it doesn't clog your network, or you can use IPv4 and unicast if you want. Um, and again, with multicast, you get kind of this auto-discovery network, because your nodes come up with these uh, agents running on them, they kind of phone home, and you don't have to, in your configuration on the master, you don't have to list out all your thousand machines, they just show up in your, as, they, as they start spreading their data back home. Uh, so that's a really nice tool there. Collectible is kind of a command line tool. It's kind of like VMstat and IOStat and all those different stack commands are kind of rolled into one. And you can format, well, I want to see CPU and compared with network, compared with my memory usage. And those all stats and, you know, scroll them out as they come. Uh, yeah, that one's written in Perl. Um, it can, the really nice thing about Collectible is it can do sub-second resolution. So if you need to collect really fine-grained data, you know, less than every second, you can do that. It takes the time high-res module in Perl to be able to do that. Um, it can give you command line output. You can run it as a daemon. Um, you can send data over UDP to feed it into Ganglia. Uh, you can output its data in plot format to feed it into GNU Cloud, Excel, or OpenOffice. Um, it has an interactive mode from the command line. You can do a record mode, so you're sending the data to a file. You can read data from a file into it and look at it, play it back for you. Um, 
You can output its output to an arbitrary socket. So if you want to write your own daemon to harvest all the data, it can send that, the, whatever it's collecting while it's running, can send it to some socket. Um, again, it's another tool that's just easy to integrate. It's a nice little you know, foundation block in your environment to do stuff with it. Um, and it can do stuff that's above and beyond your basic what SAR will give you. SAR is another one that's uh, not on this list. Uh, Collectible can do stuff like NFS stats. If you're using the Lustra, Lustre, uh, cluster file system, it will grab stats from that. Interconnect stats, slab data. Um, again, it's uh, this is tool that's really easy to integrate in your, your environment. Another one's DSTAT. It's written by the guy who does the DAG packages repository. Um, it's a replacement for VMSAT, IOSAT. It's kind of a lot like Collectible. Uh, except it's written in Python. So interesting as you find for each language, you find a tool that's similar that's written in a different language. Go figure. Um, but it's also easy to extend plugins. Uh, it touts that there are no time shifts when the system is stressed. Um, you can export a state to CSV. RD tool, of course, the granddaddy of all this stuff. Um, it uses cyclic databases. The really nice thing about RD graphs and, and data as it stores it are files where you can set a specific file size and you never have to worry about that database growing. You can say, I want to collect this much data, and as it fills up that database, it just starts writing back at the beginning. Uh, assuming that data that is old, you're going to be less likely to want to look at it, and it just and it'll kind of aggregate older data into more, uh, more and more, or less and less granular time slices. Uh, it's used just about everywhere. Um, can produce graphs. You can put just about anything into it as long as it's time series data. Um, MRTG is the same author that wrote RD tool, used for graphing traffic from routers and any other device with SNMP support. It's written in Perl. Graphite is another one that came out, uh, is done by Orbitz, the travel company. And this one was really, really cool. Um, it's very, very similar to RD tool, except uh, it fixes a couple of the problems that they ran into when trying to scale RD tool out to a, a huge number of machines. Um, and they, it's uh, enterprise scalable real-time graphing. Um, designed to be horizontally scalable, storing data for thousands of devices. You can add machines to increase throughput, um, real-time graphs even under load. Uh, a quote from the website at the time of this writing, the production system at Orbitz can handle approximately 160,000 distinct metrics per minute running on two Niagara Tucson servers on very fast SAN. So that's pretty good. Yeah, written in Python. Of course, SNMP, um, a lot of devices run SNMP. You can query the devices, a lot of routers, network equipment. Uh, you can run SNMPD on your servers and gather data that way. DRA is a graphing uh, tool that you can use to graph uh, RRD graphs. Um, Supermon's another one. I don't have a lot of data about that one. Let's see, moving on though. Item number six, ticketing. Once you get a big enough staff uh, maintaining what needs to happen in the network through post-its on your monitor doesn't scale very well. Um, so you want to have some kind of ticketing system whereby people can submit trouble tickets, uh, help desk requests, that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a ton of those out there if you look for them. I like RT. That's about all I'll say about that. Uh, one thing I don't like about RT, unfortunately, well, RT is written in Perl. Obviously, I like that. Um, one thing I don't like about RT is um, rendering the page when you have a huge ticket. Um, takes way too long. I, I wish they'd nancacheify the thing, make it faster. Just use uh, the command line tool, or they do that. Yeah. Face and write their own, then you got no problem. So. Right, right. But I'm a lazy sysadmin, right? If someone's already built it, yeah, right. admin is a lazy admin. I agree. Right. So. <laughs> no, I agree. That's the nice thing about RT is. Or handling that a lot. 
Yeah. Yeah. Nice part about RT is it does have a command line interface, so you can interact with it that way. Good stuff. And it's very extensible being Perl. You can plug templates into it. You can do all sorts of uh, extension of it. It integrates well into your environment. Let's see, pattern number seven, centralized user account management. Once you have all these machines, how can you log into all of them? How do you maintain password changes? Um, a couple possibilities, LDAP, there's a number of LDAP, open source LDAP servers out there. You've got open LDAP, you've got, which is okay, if you, but if you're gonna scale it up, make sure you don't use Berkeley DB as your backend, because that tends to get corrupted frequently, as I see some nodding heads in the room who people have probably sweated over that one a couple times. Um, Another question if you're using some kind of centralized directory system is what do you do when your directory is down? Do you have a set of escape accounts that you can log into to manage machines or are you toast? Um, what do you do there? Kerberos another. Um, what, what we did at United Online is we used CF Engine to distribute password files. And it was a very, we tried all that for a little bit in the internal environment, just ran all sorts of problems with it. And so decided we're going to use uh, CF Engine with distribute the password files. Worked really nicely. Puppet can do the same thing, although you don't have to slap files around with Puppet. You can just use a little snippet of the Puppet code and say, define these users need this account. You can templatize it all. What about users' home directories? If they log in, are they going to expect to have a certain set of files there? How do you do that? Do you mount it via NFS and deal with all the issues that come with NFS? But when, when you happen to have 10,000 NFS clients for a server and you overwhelm the server, what do you do? Do you have a regular rsync that pushes the contents, maybe a specific set of contents out to all these machines um, on a regular basis? You know, these are questions you have to ask. And lots of, again, there's lots of tools you can do that with. Yeah. I like the idea. Um, where you have something like CF Engine or Puppet that's pushing out. Well, is there's a central server where all the users who have to log into the servers can log into, and they can put, I want this set of files to be on all the machines. And then I'd use something like CF Engine or Puppet to push that out. So that I have all of the nifty little tools that are in my bin directory are on each machine. That's what I would do. I wouldn't use NFS just because once you scale to 10,000 machines, you'll cripple your NFS server. Yeah, yeah, so like that, so it works well. Any other suggestions? What do you guys? What have you guys done, done that works well for you? It, And it could depend, you know, depending on your environment, it could depend on your security policy. There may be some places where you don't want sharp tools lying around, you know, uh, for would-be attackers to get into. Yeah. One of the thoughts that I had was uh, if you could use um, NFS or something similar to that where you have everybody logging to the same account, like same home directory structure, because uh -huh. so, if they're all admins, they're probably only going to have some tools and just don't use, mm -hmm. they just don't have anything special if they're at home other than the fact that, you know, like different shells and that sort of thing, it's probably yeah. having What's that? Other than that scenario where you want specific configurations, it ends up being a problem. But otherwise, it isn't, you know, if you have a small team, or, you, know, you could probably get away with it in certain scenarios. But it's just a thought. Yeah. 
Great, thanks. Okay, so next pattern, DNS. Um, inside this environment, you're going to need some kind of DNS services. Uh, you're going to want to have external DNS services, so the world asking for your website can do it. You want something scalable, stable. But you're also going to need internal DNS services, and so you want to have some kind of local resolvers. Um, there's a number of different DNS servers that are out there open source. You've got the Venerable Bind. Um, very capable, very can be complex if you want it to. My DNS is, in it is one we use at United Online. It's actually really quite simple. There hasn't been a whole lot of updates to the code base in a, quite a while, but it's still pretty stable. Um, basically what it is, it's a DNS server that's backended by a MySQL database or a PostgreSQL database if you want one. Um, and so at United Online, we had about millions of resource records in there, probably 80 to 100,000 domains that we hosted inside there. And you can update it just like update, any DNS updates are just a database update. And so there's some, you can write your own front-end tools for it. Um, DJB DNS is another good resolver um, if you can deal with Dan Bernstein's code and his philosophy. I don't prefer it, but... So I'll say there's lots of others out there, lots of other DNS systems. But something to think about. You'll want internal services, you want external services. Um, yeah, can we see that? So a little, little bit of uh, DNS wisdom here. As you're building your environment, as you're writing your code, um, don't hard code IP addresses into your code. Because every time and your database is going to change, your whatever server you're connecting to is going to change sometime. It's a royal pain in the rear to have to do a code rollout to change that for that. So instead, um, use CNames. Just write BillingDB. That never has to change. You never have to change your code if your infrastructure, your environment changes. Create a CNAME in DNS. If you have to acquiesce the infrastructure, change the DNS, start things back up, you've done the change. So just a suggestion, one way of going about that that's been nice. Um, so. Let's see, next pattern is mass execution. Comes a time when you've got thousands of machines and you want to run the same thing on all of those machines. Maybe you haven't got your collection system on and you want to know the value of dirty buffers in proc mem info on all of those machines. And so how do you gather that information? Or maybe I've got a file update I need to make or whatever you have to do across 20,000 machines. You don't want to be SSHing into 20,000 machines to make that change. So there's a lot of different options here in the open source uh, world too. We've got CF Run, which is a piece of CF Engine, and it kind of ties in with CF Engine so that based on whatever classes you've defined in CF Engine, you can say run this command if it's part of this machine is part of this class. Funk is one that's really quite cool, uh, written in Python, um, relatively new, allows you to, um, you can either use it from the command line or it's got libraries so you can incorporate it in your script. So you can write scripts that do stuff across all your infrastructure. Um, really worth looking at. Uh, SSH and expect is another way to do that. At uh, Unite Online, we have this lovely little tool called Masshost that was built on uh, SSH and the expect pro module. Worked okay, had its warts, but uh, I don't know if I'd use it again, but if I had given these others. C3 is a uh, set of tools built for high-performance computing clusters. Capistrano is one that comes out in the Rails uh, community, uh, Ruby, Distributed Shell, Fabric. I won't go into too much of these, but they're out there, available. Pattern number 10 is time synchronization. Uh, once you get up to a number of machines, you're going to want to have some way of keeping them all on the same clock so that odd things don't happen because 
your DNS server is at midnight when the rest of them are at 6 a.m. Uh, fun things happen when that happens. So you use NTPD, that's pretty much the main thing out there. Um, there's a book out there by APRESS called uh, Expert Network Time Protocol. And in there, they talk about having to account for uh, relatively, when you relativity, if we have like some interplanetary network, right? And you have to deal with the Einstein Einsteinian effects with your time sinking. So, when we get to that scale, just keep that in mind. You'll have to worry about it. Don't think we're there yet. Maybe NASA has to. I think NASA has to deal with that kind of stuff. What's that? I'm sorry, Dan. That I don't know. It'd be interesting to find out. But I assume NASA has to deal with these kind of things, right? Time shifts with the. I don't know, as you accelerate your rockets to fast enough, you've got to deal with your time dilation. Anyways, pattern number 11 that uh, I noticed uh, uh, is having some sort of internal messaging or IRC system. You want to have uh, an easy way of being able to talk with people without having to get up or, you know, email or even emailing. Um, at United Online, we had an internal chat server. Um, at Omniture, same story. It was really interesting when I came to Amateur and I started to see all these same things. Like my first day there, I saw all of these similarities. Even 4,000 emails from Nagios were there in my inbox the first day. It's like, boy, I'm, I'm right at home. This is great, you know? <laughs> so get those filters set up really quick. Yeah, no. Anyways, there's a bazillion uh, IRC demons and matching number of clients and bots. Have the bots that you write for your system do interesting and useful things, like have little commands that can query the status of certain host groups. Um, you know, if you want to get really fun, you know, tie this into your mass execution stuff and, you know, be able to, from your IRC channel, send out commands to your system. I don't know. All sorts of things you can do. Because we're open source, we can tie all this stuff together. You've got an endless supply of Legos to play with here. So, um, you know, if you want your, your Nagios alerts to come through your IRC channel, you can do that too. Um, all sorts of stuff you can do with the uh, IRC and your bots. Um, Oh, yeah, send snarky messages to your boss when it's uh, late and the machine's gone down. I don't know. Make life fun, too. Make your bots fun, do fun things. But pattern 12, change management and auditing. Um, with recent years in Sarbox, Sarbanes-Oxley, and all sorts of stuff like that, depending on your environment, you have to worry about this. Um, one recommendation, read this book, Visible Ops Handbook. Um, really, really good book. Um, and defines a good change management system. Eventually, you're going to need to get to the point where you need to know what's changed on the system. If something goes down, you don't want to have to be going digging through servers. What you'd rather do is go through audit log. What change has been made that might have triggered this? Go there first and be able to find that. Interesting quote out of this I'm going to read. Um, it says, a high-performing organization. So essentially, the authors of this book did a bunch of research on corporations and companies and organizations and said, which ones have the most effective IT organizations as far as change management? Uh, and they said the high-performing organizations can effectively handle extremely high volumes of change, often responsible for successfully implementing hundreds or even thousands of changes per week. They sustain high change success rates of over 99% as defined by changes that are successfully implemented without causing an outage or an episode of unplanned work. That was the quote that caught my attention in that book. When I started reading it, it sounded kind of like, you know, high uber ITIL speak and that kind of stuff. But then I saw this and this really caught my mind, my, my eye because, you know, we've been working where, you know, something changes and you spend hours trying to, pick to clean up after that change. Um, so this book describes all sorts of patterns that these high-performing organizations do. And depending on how it's implemented, it can be either a royal pain in the rear or it can be 
you just have to, the way you approach and the way that you do a change management, um, it has to work with you, but, you know, these kind of statistics really get my attention when I see that. So, good change management can make or break your organization. Next pattern, number 13. There is no pattern 13. Um, as I remind you, there's a lot more magic to these machines than we want to admit, so. Uh, pattern 14, project management. Uh, there's a number of tools out there. Eventually, you're going to have want something to organize your projects, whether that's, you know, I don't know, a wiki or or Microsoft Project, maybe not, I don't know, that's not open source, uh, Mr. Project, Dot Project, uh, there's a number of those out there. Pattern number 15, internal mail handling. Um, your systems generate mail. Uh, when cron, something happens in a cron execution, you're going to get mail. There's all sorts of events that are going to generate mail. You're going to want to have something that's going to catch all that and get it into a place where you can look at it. Maybe a bunch of proc mail rules or something to funnel that weed out all the important stuff out of your internal mail handling. You want it to be nice and redundant. Um, number of tools, again, Postfix, XMQ, Mail, SendMail. QPSMTPD is an interesting one. It's a SMTPD even written in Perl. It's got this pluggable architecture, so you can kind of hook all sorts of stages in the SMTP dialog to do different things. Um, so yeah, again, catch emails generated by cron. If you have systems that are delivering mail to your customers based on certain events, maybe you've got a sign-up event that triggers an email off to them, maybe they've got uh, forgot my password kind of thing, you don't want your customers waiting for three hours until they get their, you know, their, their forgot my password and they get it, oh wait, what did I do? Anyways, so yeah, you want a good internal, solid internal mail system that can handle that. Um, pattern number 16, internal log harvesting processing. Depending on what you're doing, you're going to generate copious amounts of logs, be those Apache logs, mail logs, syslogs. Um, one tool here that's uh, useful is syslogng. Uh, you can have a master syslog server in all of your nodes. You can configure them in your syslogd.comp to log to a centralized log host. You can also get, there's a lot of networking devices that can do the same sort of thing where you can specify a syslog host that will capture all this stuff. And so you want some good tools to be able to capture all that and aggregate it and analyze it in uh, good ways for you. One thing you might want to look at is Hadoop. Who here is familiar with Hadoop? Hadoop is an open source implementation of the MapReduce system that's in use at Google. Um, it's uh, Yahoo's got a really huge Hadoop cluster, I think like 10,000 nodes in which they process and crunch logs. Um, if you want to play around with Hadoop and MapReduce, uh, Amazon just announced, I think they call it Elastic MapReduce, so there's a cloud service where you can instantiate a MapReduce cluster and play around with it if you want. Um, Facebook uh, just recently started using Hadoop to crunch a bunch of data that they have, and they built this layer called Hive, which they've open sourced. Hive produces a SQL-like layer on top of MapReduce, so it takes your SQL, converts it to a MapReduce kind of function, sends that into Hadoop, pulls results back. Really good for kind of data warehousing and uh, real-time query type stuff. So one of the things that um, I noticed you didn't have up there was RSYSLOG, which actually has a database backend. What's that called? RSYSLOG. It's actually the newer version of SYSLOG. Okay. SYSLOG um, D, I think. RSYSLOG. Yeah, RSYSLOG. And so they, mm -hmm. they actually run it in most of the Red Hat systems, like all the Fedora stuff. So mm -hmm. I think Perl 6 will have it. Basically, it has a, an option for a database backend, I think. Mm -hmm. MySQL and Postgres are supported and several others. Mm -hmm. And so it actually supports the ability to database it and then you can mm -hmm. integrate that into a SQL query. That's okay. Right. So some nice stuff there. Cool. So I think our system can also talk you over TCP instead of UDP. Yeah. Okay. So it can. I've, I've had a problem in the previous endeavors where we were doing a lot of application traffic logging through syslog and our messages were getting cut off by UDP. 
Right. So we implemented our syslog, changed everything over to GCP, and then our methods went in. And I'd really like to see like a comparison of what how the, the performance comparison of syslog and G versus other scripts syslog mm -hmm. in those sorts of environments because that's kind of neat too. There's a lot of value in, in being able to dig into the code or dig into the blogs themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading a book today called The Art of Capacity Management by the guys at, uh, one of the guys at Flickr, now Yahoo, um, who said that they feed their syslog data into some kind of system uh, and they're able to watch, for example, the, the number of messages that they see on the, during a given time period so that they can see if you see a, a flood of messages come into your syslog, you can be alerted to that fact. Yeah. Yeah. So Spread is a messaging, uh, some messaging software um, that uh, uses multicast, and what it claims is reliable order delivery of messages uh, over multicast. And there's a module that they wrote, the same guys at Omniti, the guys who did uh, Reconnoiter, uh, Theo Schlossnagel and Co. Um, they wrote a module called Modlog Spread for Apache. I don't know if there's been a whole lot of development work on it, but essentially what it does is it allows your Apache logs to get sent out over this spread communication channel. And uh, the presenter I saw, I think it was Theo, that I saw at ApacheCon a number of years ago, talk about how they were able to, doing this, watch their traffic real-time, watch their logs coming off the machines real-time, being able to subscribe to different events and see what was going on there. It's really kind of cool stuff. But also um, with the log watcher that Swatch. Swatch. And I've heard about, and I, just a couple people when, when I was teaching, they mentioned that, and it basically will alert you immediately. Whereas right. like things like mm -hmm. log watch will tell you it's gay or whatever. But right. Swatch is a will watch the monitor and tell you what's happening right now. There's a big problem. Here you go. Let mm -hmm. you know right away. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Okay. Um, next pattern, virtualization is an important tool in your data center. Um, there's a lot of different virtualization. You want to use it for consolidation where it makes sense. Uh, United Online, we had a lot of uh, benefit here. Um, we started virtualizing a lot of things and we were able to consolidate quite a bit. In one of our data center moves, we had this, I don't know, 40% reduction in footprint, which you know equates to a lot of power savings, a lot of cost savings because you have less rack space that you have to contain because we had a lot of systems that were, you know, we built back in 2000. 2,000 area machines that we were able to consolidate on these monster quad cores with lots of disk and stuff. Um, so where it makes sense, don't go overboard with it, but where it makes sense to consolidate stuff, the uh, risk you run with the virtualization is um, when your host node goes down for whatever reason, it affects a lot more systems than just the one that it used to be after you, before you uh, virtualized it. And also virtualization is really useful for replicating your production environments in a, on a much smaller scale to be able to replicate every aspect of your production environment in a controlled, uh, in a, in a controlled uh, setup. So you can practice all of your CF engine changes, all your puppet changes, all your remote mass execution changes. You can practice all that stuff and see, make sure you don't have that inadvertent RM minus RF that's going to wipe out all your code or whatever or cause mass havoc uh, in your production system. Um, so just a really, really useful tool to be able to replicate your entire production environment. It's also a really good exercise because then you get to know what's in your production environment. 
Sometimes when you scale out to these massive things and your, your company's been going for 10 years, you've got all sorts of dark corners. That who knows what's going on? If some developer wrote that 10 years ago. We don't know what it does. It just does, right? And so virtualizing, going through this exercise of virtualizing your environment makes you go through and explore those dark corners and figure out what on earth is this thing doing? So it's just a really good exercise to go through to be able to have that experience and that knowledge of every aspect of your system, every cron job habit so it runs... You know, likewise, obviously on a smaller scale, but every process that you have in your production system replicated in a virtualized environment, in a QA era thing. So again, there's lots of uh, open source tools. You've got Zen, VirtualBox uh, by Sun, OpenVZ by the Virtuoso guys, KVM, Solaris Zones, VMware, uh, not open source, but, uh, but yeah, it's there. Pattern number 18 is a well-staffed knock. Once you get to a certain point, um, it lets your sysadmins have life. Um, it requires, however, very well-documented systems and very well-documented procedures. But again, it's really nice to have a frontline staff that handles all of the minutia and allows you to focus on your core business and your core products and focus on getting real work done, in theory. Pattern number 19 is some kind of internal knowledge base. Uh, maybe a wiki, maybe some docs and CVS or some kind of version control. Important thing is lower the barrier to entry. If it's a pain in the rear to use it, nobody's going to use it and it's going to lose its value. The easier it is to use it, the more intuitive it is to use it, the less documentation you have to write to explain how to use it, the more people are going to want to use it. So, but again, um, as you're deploying new systems, document them. As you find out problems, um, as you, you know, patch holes in your monitoring, oh, we found this, document what happened. Um, keep a daily log of what you're doing so that... Um, if you go back and say, well, what happened? You know, how did I fix this particular problem? You can go back and say, oh, yeah, that's, you know, this, this magic incantation that I had to use that time to fix this problem. All in a good knowledge base. Pattern number 20 is inventory and asset management. Once you get to a large number of machines, it becomes interesting trying to keep track of all of that hardware. Um, when you have 20,000 machines, it's really easy for hardware to get lost or to fall through the cracks or whatnot. Um, you want some kind of system that makes it easy once you unpack that thing and rack it up to get it into your inventory management. Uh, we've got a system where we can barcode, we slap a barcode on the machine uh, with a laptop that's got a USB barcode scanner, scan it right in, it goes into the system, gets into that asset management. Some of these systems that are available out there, we talked about in the monitoring, the data collection system, that they kind of double duty as that, Zen OSS, OpenQRM, XCAT, uh, OCS Inventory, NGI Classify, Rack Monkey, Rack Tables, give you rack diagrams, um, or you can build your own. Um, back at United Online, I built my own system called the Host Database. And... Um, And it was essentially this uh, asset management, and it tied in a bunch of stuff with Kickstart and all sorts of thing, things. And with all these open source tools, you can then begin to tie all this stuff together um, into this Uber system. Pattern number 21, again, we talked about staging beta and QA, whatever you want to call your stages. Maybe it's development, maybe it's alpha, beta, live, whatever you want to call it. You've got to have some kind of system for going from development, which you absolutely don't want development doing stuff out on your production servers, I remember at Free Servers, which is where what uh, the main product, uh, uh, United Online, one of the hosting products, that, one of their brands that we had, um, back in the day when they were North Sky, the uh, developers would develop on web server number one, 
and the poor folks on web server number one had to live with whatever code happened to get pushed out by the developers there. And then when it worked on web server one, we pushed it out to the rest of the servers. Probably not the best way that you want to do that. Um, but again, you want to have kind of some kind of development environment roped off carefully so nothing you know, makes its way out to production. Oh, that's an interesting story there. Um, probably if you've ever uh, been in Oracle DBA, you've been bitten by this at least once upon a time. Oracle has, uh, when you run an Oracle database, there's this little program called the Listener. And it's what handles incoming TCP connections and funnels those connections onto the database. The Listener has a configuration in which you specify the Oracle SID. And you specify the host configuration. And it gets really easy to copy those uh, TNS, the, the Listener configuration around. And so one day I remember I had copied the, the Listener configuration from the production environment into the, the, the development environment. Stopped the listener on that machine, and all of a sudden I got production alerts that the database, the production database was down. Well, that listener had the capability of being able to reach out to whatever IP address was in the configuration and shut down the listener remotely. So, nice way to shut down your production database when you didn't intend to. So, it's often a good idea to fence off your development environment so that kind of thing doesn't happen. Again, having a beta or a staging an environment that looks a lot, as much as possible, like production that's not development for you to then, once you've got development, you roll your code out there, test out your changes, test out your configuration changes, make sure they're working well, and then push it off to production once you're, you're satisfied that things look good. And again, all of this is going through your change management system, your change uh, and, and uh, auditing system. So all of these changes are tracked, and you can easily pinpoint where, when these changes happen. Okay, so that's most of these patterns. Wow, and I hope you, I'm glad you're still with me here. Um, we talked about those virtualizations, a great help on those. Um, automate the building of those environments. If you can automate the creation of all of that with your magic use data center script, right? That's, you're, you're getting quite a ways there where it instantiates all the pieces, instantiates all your kickstart provisioning, instantiates all your puppet configs and everything like that. You can really go to town with all that. Pattern number 22, backups. Make sure you're keeping backups of the stuff that needs to be backed up. Um, just a couple of lists there. There's probably a ton more. Amanda, Bacula looked really interesting when I was looking at that one. Um, and finally, pattern number 22, one tool to rule them all. That's this tying it all together. Back at United Online, I was telling you about this host database. It started out kind of with um, kind of two facts. Number fact number one was that PostgreSQL could store, had a native data type for MAC addresses and IP addresses. I thought, wow, that's really cool. I could store host information in that thing. And it kind of just blew up from all that, right? Um, so I created this whole database schema about storing all this information about our system. And then fact number two was that Kickstart, um, the, uh, the, the Pixie system with Red Hat and Kickstart, it can read Kickstart files over HTTP. So as a machine would come up, do its DHCP request, and in the config that comes back with that, it says, oh, hey, you go fetch your Kickstart file from here. Well, that... Uh, HTTP URL that it would fetch happened to be a CGI, and it would dynamically determine, based on who was asking for it, which Kickstart file it needed to hand out to it. And so it would hand out the Kickstart file, and off it would go and install CF Engine, and then CF Engine would take it from there. So you'd, get, you'd be able to tie all this stuff together. I love putting this stuff together. I love integrating all this stuff. So uh, let's talk for a minute about if I have, you know, I have this dream of this use data center kind of um, uh, automation tool and host management system. Um, it's the, uh, the ideal data center management system. And it wraps together all the stuff that we've been talking tonight, all these tools that you can use 
to fulfill all of these patterns that we've talked about. Um, yeah, would, the architecture would look something like this. You'd have some kind of data storage sitting there at the bottom. Um, you'd have, of course, audit trail and versioning. You've had a kind of an engine that provides modular functionality. So if I wanted monitoring or graphing or, you know, whatever piece of all these pieces, I could plug it in and it would just kind of, you know, fit into that whole system with a nice little REST API sitting on top of it so that I could write a web UI, flash UI, command line interface, or a DTK UI, or a mobile interface to it, whatever I wanted, that I'll plug into that. So you have an arch architecture, something like that. Um, among, and among other things, and in no particular order, um, we'd be able to manage all of our hosts, which are network-connected devices. We could be able to specify all sorts of details for our hosts, interfaces, and please don't make me just specify one single IP address for a machine. That's just a, no, I Machines can have multiple interfaces, and each interface can have multiple IP addresses, you know, sub-interfaces, that kind of thing. Let me manage disks and partitions, memory, CPU, motherboard, all the details that I need to store about a host. All that various information. I should be able to create a timestamp log entries about this host. I rebooted this guy today. I, I kickstarted this guy today. Whatever. Keep a running log of everything that's happened on that system. Oh, I should be able to visualize where this host lives in the data center. So I should have rack diagrams that get auto-generated from this stuff. Um, I don't know if we have proximity sensors so that when we rack a machine, it can automatically phone home and say, hey, I live here, maybe someday down the road. Uh, maybe in the cloud, I can make my virtual uh, rack diagrams. Anyways, but it should have, you know, be visual, so I like, think Visio stencils and what my machines look like, so I can tell the, the remote hands guy, at 2 a.m. in the morning, this is where the power button, this is where the, you know, the, the plugs are on this thing. Um, I should be able to spit out spreadsheets of those rack layouts so I can, you know, send them up to the, the suits, up to my bosses and whatever. I should be able to um, easily modify DNS information. There'd be a really nice intuitive DNS configurator there. Um, I should be able to add and configure all that stuff. Uh, when I add a new host, it should automatically add DNS records for me. Um, and it should help me from shooting myself in the foot, like adding trailing dots to host name, bumping up my serials when I make any kind of change, and being able to roll back to a known working DNS configuration and log any DNS changes. Um, logging DNS changes, that would be fantastic. Um, I should really keep track of all the network subnets, and when I plug in a machine, when I plug in its interface information, it should all magically show up in that, that subnet view. Um, I should be able to auto-detect auto uncatalogued hosts on the network and assimilate them into this system. Um, I should be able to control a large number of aspects of each host since my system is tied into Puppet or, or CF Engine or something. So from that command center, I should be able to do all of the changes and modifications that I could be able to do in Puppet or CF Engine. So anything that I should be able to do in Puppet or CF Engine, I should be able to do from this command center. I should be able to install and uninstall packages. Uh, I should be able to enable and disable cron entries. So all this, again, you know, Puppet and CF Engine tie-in. should be able to manage user accounts from this system. This guy, this... Uh, Admin's acting up, he did something bad, let's disable his account. I should be able to manage file and directory permissions. Uh, if we've got uh, bad files out there, I should be able to get rid of them. Or touch files that need to exist. I should be able to control which processes are running, control which services need to start up on a machine when it boots up. I should be able to manage my kickstarting and provisioning from this system. It should be able to spit out kickstart files for me. I should be able to choose a particular box, choose a type of image or a system profile, or have it suggest one to me based on the hardware profile I'm looking at. Oh, I've got a Dell 1950, that, and uh, I need a web server, you know, go throw on the right in, image on it. Um, I should be able to manage machines in multiple data centers around the globe. So I should be able to gather all my stuff into, you know, I've got one in China, I've got one in LA, whatever. And we should be able to have granular access privileges on this. We don't want the, uh, the, the level one sysadmins, you know, having full control, not yet. Um, I should be able to manage uh, system monitoring in this system. It should auto-generate my Nagios configuration and spread that out to my Nagios servers or whatever I'm using for monitoring. 
I should be able to, for a given host, I should be able to see all the graphs that are associated for that host, be it via MRTG, RID, or ganglia. Um, both at the host level and at arbitrary host grouping levels. I should be able to group by machine type, by OS type, by operating system type, and then do configuration changes or see graphs based on that thing all aggregated up if, into that specific group. So if I say I've got a set of customers that are out on machines A, B, and C, I just want to see the stats for those machines, you know, be able to pull those stats in and aggregate them and show them to me. Um, I should be able to fire mass execution of commands from this machine, have a little thing where I can say I want to run this on this arbitrary grouping of hosts. Um, and again, on any arbitrary grouping, I should be able to visually see which machines my command executed successfully on. How many times have you used a mass execution tool and only, you know, two-thirds of it takes on your system, and then you got to go chase down the, the one-third that didn't take? Um, so I should be able to see visually, you know, little red and green dots. Okay, this one's spread out here and all this. Funk has that kind of capability to be able to check that, oh yeah, this actually happened on that machine. Good stuff. Um, and then are optionally be able to check the command output on a particular machine for what happened when I sent that command to it. Um, systems should be integrated into our ticketing system so that for any given machine or host on the network, I should be able to see what uh, tickets are associated with it. I should be able to manage virtual machines as well as this. This should be able to control a cloud-based data center as opposed to a physical data center. Um, so I want to point at an EC2 or one of the other cloud services. Who was it? Um, Tim Bray, I think, is working, I think, at Sun, developing a protocol that's compatible with Amazon's EC2, but is a really well-designed protocol for just this sort of thing. Something to keep an eye on. Um, I should be able to tag or group machines and apply different actions to each tag or group. should have a wiki built into it, so I've got my knowledge base built into that. Um, and it should have a red glowing orb to remind me occasionally who is really in control. Again, it goes back to pattern number 13, right? Where is that? Okay. Slide malfunction. Slide. Sorry, this is going to be so good, too. There we go. Okay, so that's it. My red glowing orb there, right? But of course, since we're working at Omniture, it needs to be green. Right? But again, since we're working at Omniture, it needs to be branded. Omniture is always about always, all, all about marketing and branding, so we've got to make sure it's the right green. Okay, my system should be integrating with version control, so I can time shift or roll back or roll forward to different configuration states. It should be able to integrate with my change management system, so when the Sarabox auditors come in, I can point to it and say, yeah, these changes happened at this point in time by this person. And it should be able to integrate with the bug tracking systems that the developers are using. I should be able to remotely power cycle my machines from there, control all aspects of that. I should be able to open a remote console through that, through like the uh, ILO on HP or through the, the remote access controller on uh, Dell hardware, that kind of thing. It should be modular, easy, extensible for anything that I happen to forgot today. And it should be able to have nice reports that I can print out and send up to management. Uh, I should be able to ex export data from the system. I should be able to arbitrarily group hosts together. We talked about that. And these views should adapt themselves. So I'm looking at performance graphs, and I want this particular grouping. It should aggregate that data based on that group. Whew, in essence, the system should be able to tie together everything we discussed tonight, fulfill all those patterns, and one nice, easy control system. It's an easy world. Again, it comes back to sufficiently advanced technology. Is it magic? Well, we can make it happen. With all the stuff in cloud computing, we're getting closer to this idea of using data, use data center becoming a reality. The more we can abstract all the crap away, the more we can focus on our business and on what we're doing. And when data center ops become utility, what then becomes possible? And I posit that with all the open source tools available, this is getting very close. To some extent, there's always going to be hardware that you have to deal with and all that stuff. But 
Some other fun things to look at, and again, these slides will be available on my website. Uh, through Terra is an application utility provider. They essentially virtualize a data center and provide kind of cloud-based load balancers and databases and servers, fun stuff. Amazon Cloud Services, RightScale, kind of ties off that. Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, my blog's up there. I'll be posting the slides on there. I Twitter at Dan Hanks. There's my email. Thanks for staying with me here. I hope it's been worth your time. I hope you've learned something that you can go home with and use in your whatever you happen to be doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hack the Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.